Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by the Department of the Interior Bureau of Displaced Antiquities. Uh, wait, no it isn't, because we don't have any displaced antiquities. None at all. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is Kirk Damon. Kirk is in the captain of the Enterprise. Uh, Today's topic is trademarks. We actually have not talked that much about trademarks, Kirk. We haven't, mostly because of the fact that we've been talking about the 80s, according to some of our mailbags <laughs> from the last episode. Uh, but yeah, we've been focusing, obviously, on patent law, and actually, surprisingly, contract law quite a bit as well. I actually just had a trivia night about the 80s, and I realized at that event how much I have forgotten about the 80s. Much really, more than I remember. <laughs> well, what I think is most stunning is when I actually watch movies that sort of flash back to the 80s. So, like, um, one of the, the ones, and my wife loves the movie, is 13 Going on 30, which, quite frankly, even though it's a romantic comedy, if you are fr- a child of the 80s, you will get a kick out of, just because it makes fun of a lot of things from the 80s kind of has fun with them and stuff like that because you have somebody that's a child of the 80s suddenly getting thrown into you know 17 years later as I said 13 going on 30 um, and and trying to bring the 80s into the, the late 90s early 2000s and it just doesn't work but yeah it's there's the things in it where they're doing these things and I'm like I don't think I ever encountered that in the 80s like well, this is what you know have they started making 90s nostalgia films yet no they, I don't think they have though we, we were joking about it uh, my wife and I happened to be when we were traveling uh, um, a few weeks ago, and we happened to come about it. We, we ended up, we were listening to the radio, and we flipped over, and we had both our kids in the car, and it's be, uh, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody started. <laughs> and we're like, okay, you kids need to hear this just because it's this is, you know piece of music you need to hear. Um, and we realized it was on the oldies show. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I tuned Pandora to my my 90s alternative rock station, and then me and my kids go downstairs and work on a, a puzzle that we're doing. And invariably, some song comes on that they're like, what is this? This is garbage. Why can't we listen to something good? And I, I can't even begin <laughs> to tell you what they consider to be good, but, but suffice we, it to say, children have terrible taste in music. <laughs> we, had, we had fun with it, actually, in the end, because it's uh, my daughter's currently taking guitar lessons, and one of the things oh, that nice. we had is, in the course of it, one of the songs that came on soon after Bohemian, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody was Freebird, mm-hmm. and so we we set our daughter up, but when her guitar teacher asked, um, what's the next song you want to play, she apparently told him Freebird. <laughs> yeah, this lesson's only 30 minutes, kid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk today about uh, that time that LucasArts uh, appeared to claim a trademark to the word Nazi. This topic comes to us from Ed in Grand Rapids, so thank you, Ed. In fact, uh, we were just talking about going up there this summer maybe for uh, another beer festival, maybe yep. at Kalamazoo. I think the Michigan Brewers Guild one is in Ypsilanti now. That's, uh, uh, that's the summer one, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a hike. So we might see if Kalamazoo has, a, has one that's closer. So, Ed, if we do that, we'll, we'll, we'll look you up. Yeah, we've traditionally gone up there for the, the one in Grand Rapids, the winter one. We just couldn't, didn't, sort of couldn't, couldn't dare this, this year, year as yeah. to what it is. A little we're, with the we're weather, told too. the weather is unusually, inc- you know— Inclement in Michigan this year. Usually inclement. It is inclement. It's It's always inclement, yeah. Okay, so the background of this topic, for those of you who don't know, this has long been an urban legend in the gaming community uh, that TSR, that's the company that used to publish uh, Dungeons & Dragons, tried to trademark the word Nazi. And this rumor, I I think, has its genesis in obligatory 1990s-era TSR hate. Uh, The reasons for this hate are, are pretty complex. The short version is that um, there was some internal dispute within TSR over who actually owned what aspects of the Dungeons & Dragons property. And uh, TSR in the 90s got got 
pretty pretty big, uh, pretty popular. Yeah, very big, I think yeah, is the answer. And, and uh, began to churn out just an inhumane amount of material, a lot of source books and supplementary materials, and licensing what, in, in my humble opinion, are highly unqualified authors to spit out just dozens and dozens of books. I've read like 35 Dragonlance books. Yeah. About five are worth reading. Oh, and the five that are worth reading are like worth reading even if they have nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. No, no, there's generally good, good fantasy novels. So TSR was at that point, you know, had, had well established its legal and business and IP defenses. Um, but then the internet came out and TSR's response to the internet was was similar to most of the music industry's response. <laughs> and most was, other big established yeah, industries that were is, worried of lose, about losing things. What is this terrifying thing that threatens to swallow all of our IP and what do we do about it? I know, let's threaten to sue everybody. Um, so that that annoyed everybody and and was was viewed as uh, a, a symbol of TSR's sort of corporate greed uh, and and subsuming their their dedication to making fun games for for we outcast nerds to play. Yep. Uh, and and also gave rise to the 1990s meme T dollar sign R instead of yep. TSR to refer to them. One, one thing also, just for those of you who may be younger in conjunction with this, I think it's it's important to point out with TSR. TSR for the most part is a company that's still around, but Twizzers people of the haven't coast really now. heard of it. It's part of Wizards of the Coast. But most people haven't really heard about it. And and at this point in time, you know, if you're a role player, you're a collectible card gamer, anything along those lines, you've got to keep in mind how kind of revolutionary Dungeons and Dragons was at the time that it came out. I mean, it's the concept of role-playing games really didn't exist before yeah, Dungeons like and Dragons, and not in that respect. And what you saw coming into, I believe, the 80s and 90s, and I think it's sort of safe to say it happened in there, and even arguably some sense the early seven, the late 70s, mm-hmm. was a creation of games that we today think are completely ubiquitous. I mean, we have the creation of the role-playing game, we have the creation of the tabletop war game, um, essentially created by Games Workshop, um, and we have the creation of the collectible card game, um, which is basically created by Wizards of the Coast and Magic the Gathering. When these games came out, I don't think anybody expected them to be the phenomenons they are. Certainly not the, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, definitely was, not Dungeons and Dragons. And, and Dungeons and Dragons also was something that, that went outside of geek culture and it grabbed a bit of popularity. I remember that you know there was a number of cases about like suicides that were arguably related to Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, there was events. the big occult scare in the early 90s. Um, and I know there's a book out because I, I got it from the library and never f- actually read the full thing called The Dungeon Master, which is about one of the suicides and, and sort of the concerns associated with, with the role-playing games. One of the things that I think is interesting, because that part of that is I think we look at it now and go, all it is is storytelling. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was so new that nobody really scary. knew how this worked. Well, and, and the Dungeons & Dragons cover art had, like, demons and stuff on it and, um, you know, had a whole polytheistic uh, religious theme running through it and a lot of a lot of things that, that did seem like occult themes. That wasn't the point of the book. It was just an aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to, you know, those of you who are younger may not, may not appreciate that the world was not that long ago much more religiously oriented than it is now. It still well, is. Puritanically religious. Pur- I think puritanically it's the better religious. way to say there it. Was, there was a lot of confusion and fear about these things. I mean, you see it a little bit now with, with people complaining about Harry Potter encouraging Wiccanism and stuff like that, but it's, that's more isolated to specific, you know, specific religious beliefs. It's, it's not widespread throughout just sort of mainstream yeah. religions. But in the, in the 70s and 80s, it, it was weird. It was a little different. Uh, I think, you know, the, the boomers were... 
a little more paranoid about this stuff and understood it less because they didn't know what it was. Yeah. It's not like now where you just see it on the news or you could just see it on the internet and it was just familiar. It was something new and all you heard was there are you know these outcast kids with long hair and torn up jeans yep. that listen to the rock and roll and heavy metal music and, and do drugs and they play these games and they wind up doing weird things. Yeah, and, and the other thing to keep in mind is there was also, I think, a substantially more fear of the idea of occult cults. Yeah. And I know I've read your stuff recently talking about the fact that you know there, there's actually some argument, interestingly enough, that that was being used as a way to actually uh, challenge communists. Um, whether or not that's true is depends on whether or not you believe the internet. But one of the the things that you know I think you really got to sort of keep in mind when this kind of stuff came out was this was radical, and the it started off as just guys doing this kind of as a hobby. It then kind of grew beyond a, a proportion that nobody expected to, and grew in a lot of different ways. You know, it was you had Dungeons and Dragons come in, but then you had all sorts of these other things come in. And I've commented about it before. You know, I used to play a lot of Shadowrun. You want to have a great idea of sort of what the fears of the 80s were, go look at the post-apocalyptic world that is created in Shadowrun. You know, the world is run by the Japanese mafia. Because at that mm. point in time, we were terrified of Japan. You know, I mean, that was, you know, part of what it was. They were going to economically destroy us. You know, there was still some threats of nuclear war. So the idea of sort of nuclear war, nuclear devastation is all present in the things. You kind of see the fear of the 80s. I know we both read it. You recommended the book to me of Snow Crash. Mm-hmm. That's another great example. Like you see, like if you grew up in the 80s, you see things from the you see 80s. all those fears reflected right in yeah, there. The yeah, the fears and also where the world is going. I mean, I love the idea that the most important job in the world is pizza delivery man. <laughs> because, that is the most important job in the world. But, because, but it has to be 30 minutes because that was such a big deal at yeah. that point in time. Yeah, late pizza was a matter of, of, of a news story in the, yeah. in the book. Yeah, well, I think also the occult thing—you know, the Dungeons and Dragons sort of grew up in the in the mid to late '70s and was popularized in the '80s. And you got to think, parents of children in the early '80s—you know, all their formative years—they they lived through the Charles Manson, you know, yes. situation. So there there was—it's not a completely unrational fear of these things, overblown, yeah. but but this is the backdrop for it. So. So TSR was, um, you know, a, a company that was popularizing this, and parents didn't like it, and it sort of became underground. I mean, I played Dungeons and Dragons secretly with my friends. Yep, for I a think while a lot of people played it since because I thought my mom it. wouldn't let me. Yep. She eventually, you know, got over it. But anyway, so at some point in the '90s, TSR got a license from uh, George Lucas, Lucasfilm or LucasArts, I forget which, to make an Indiana Jones tabletop game and the game had little stand up paper characters to represent the, the various uh, yeah. you uh, characters you use miniatures I think but it, they came yeah. with paper cutouts to make it easy so Indiana Jones is obviously set during World War II and the main antagonist is uh, the the Nazis and as part of the license deal TSR was required to you know to put trademark TMs on all of the character names supplied by Lucas Legal and, and that makes sense for some Indiana Jones trademark of yeah, course obviously However, for, 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 because of reasons, <laughs> somebody at TSR just slapped the TM on everything up to and including a generic Nazi soldier. Underneath it, it says, Nazi TM. And uh, gamers remembered this, and since it happened in the 90s when anti-TSR sentiment was pretty high, it, it you know, ex post, it morphed into an urban legend that TSR itself had tried to trademark the word Nazi, and anytime you say or type the word Nazi, you owe a nickel or something stupid like that. And I think one of the things to keep in mind about why, why would a gamer sort of pounce on this in some respects is because in the 90s, you have this idea that TSR is sold out. That's what you kind of have this yeah. feeling coming down through it that, again, we said this came out of the idea, you played this game secretly in your basement, it was something for hobbyists, it was sort of for outcasts. Cast kids. Oh, yeah, all it of us outcasts to get together and, and have something to do. Yeah, it had now become mainstream 
Mm-hmm. You know, gaming. You know, role playing games were becoming mainstream. It was becoming something that normal people played. There was a sentiment that they had forgotten who their root yep. core customers were, and and were were seeking profits at the expense of those. Expense of other people, and that you know, so you look at this and you say, this is just one example of them doing that. Look, they're trademarking yep. the term Nazi, which is not what happened, of course. Um, but you know, the truth is, TSR did publish a game with a little Nazi placard that had the word Nazi with a trademark after it. So, well, with the TM, that's yeah, with the, the, with the TM. Mark. So, in a sense, there's at least an accidental claim of a common law trademark on the term Nazi. Um, I don't think it would go so far as to say they were actually claiming that they have that trademark, but it appeared there. It gave rise to this uh, urban legend. And so we thought it would be a fun exercise to kind of play that out. What really was the effect of them doing this? And that requires a little bit of an exploration of trademark law, which we really haven't talked about much since our first episode. Yeah, and the thing to keep in mind about trademark law is that, and I talk to people, a lot of people think of trademark law as being designed to protect companies or something like that. It's not. Trademark law is actually designed to protect the consumer. Yeah. But it's a recognition that effectively the protection of the consumer relies upon the action of the producer. Yeah, the idea is, is um, so you have to go back to where trademarks come from. There was a time when we didn't have machines to make everything, yep. and if you wanted to buy a thing, you had to go find a person who knew how to make that thing. And what would happen is people who were really good at making stuff would literally put a brand or a mark or something on the product, whether it was a gun or a horseshoe or whatever, and that became known as a trademark. It would be uh, a way to identify who made the product. Well, what people who are bad at making stuff figured out pretty quick is they can make crappy things and stick the same mark on it and trick other people into buying it. And so this law of unfair competition developed, uh, and the idea was, you know, it's not fair to the consumer that they're being basically defrauded into buying something. Yep. Uh, now, it's a trademark, right? It's not an affirmative misrepresentation, but you know what you're doing if you mislabel something. Yeah. So fraud is is not really a, a neat fit as a remedy. And so we developed this law of trademark saying that once you start to use a mark in commerce and that the mark becomes associated with your goods and services, other people can't use the same or confusingly similar marks to try to trade on your goodwill. Yep. And, and the key to it is, is it's Trademark is based upon the use of the mark associated with goods or services in commerce. We've talked about the idea that in trademark law, there is a trademark registry that's maintained by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And the states have them too, but the nobody The states have really them too, and, them. and there's some other things out there. Occasionally, the states' ones matter. But it's, it's really about use and association. So you can technically get a trademark, and I think for good reason, without ever registering it. And that's commonly referred to as a common law trademark. And that's what the TM means, is a claim of common law yeah. trademark And rights. it's key that the TM does not mean you have a common law trademark. It's you claiming you have a common law trademark. So um, the the idea is that you don't trick consumers into buying something thinking it's from person A when it's not. Uh, And and these ideas have expanded over the years from literal marks on products to brands. And so we have false marking rules. I can't can't mark something and say it's made by Disney if it's not. Uh, There's trademark infringement where even if my trademark is different, if the goods and services are similar and the trademark is close enough... Then basically, is there a risk you're going to confuse people into buying your thing when they think they're getting somebody else's thing? There's a tarnishment. Um, I want to talk about that, Kirk. Yeah, I can talk about tarnishment a little bit. Tarnishment basically is the idea that you know by presenting something with a similar trademark, it might be confusing, but it might damage the brand. Particularly so, if the unsavory association. Yeah, unsavory associations. The easiest one to look at it is, say you have a, a trademark for anything associated with children and sort of well-associated with children's products, and now I want to stick it on pornography. Yeah. Unrelated bands, unrelated you know, Unrelated goods, over, there's going to be no confusion, but it is going to make your trademark yeah, look bad. It's going to make the trademark look bad, and it's something we kind of also look at it and go, look, you know, a company that's basically 
basically trying to build a brand around you know being kid friendly should not be forced to accept something that they they basically would find offensive to them even though it's not confusing to the consumer. It's just, it's negative to their brand image. It's important to understand that the trademark is does not give you a complete monopoly over all use of language. You know, Apple obviously has a trademark. Apple is applied to yep. computers and various other things. But I can still go to the grocery store and buy a product called an apple. Yep. And it's, and, a, it's a fruit. <laughs> and the idea behind that is because it's you can't trademark what are called generic names. Yeah, so we'll the apple that. being a fruit is a generic name for that particular kind of fruit. But it is a trademark when associated with computers and computer products because there's no generic apple apple fruit um and, or just our generic apple computer um <laughs> and so i think you you have those the, the thing with the trademark is again that association with the particular goods in commerce that are sold and a, and a source who's, and a it, who's source. it coming who from? is it coming from and what you're really trying to connect and what trademark law is trying to say is that somebody buying an apple computer knows who made it yeah and, and from based that, on that, they can infer what they want to infer about the product. Whether it's a, you know, you can be an Apple lover or an Apple hater. That's the point. You know that the point is there's information efficiency. Just yeah. by saying Apple, you know a lot about it. And the example I often give is uh, when we when we give talks about IP. I compare. You're driving down the street and you got a, you know a bunch of kids in the back of your car and they're starving and they're hungry and they're complaining. And you come up to one of those blue signs that says what you know amenities there are at the next stop. And there's two signs. One is McDonald's and one is Angry Andy's Furious Burgers. Yeah. Kirk, you and I are going to Angry Andes. Yeah, just you know? because of the nature of who we are. Yes, I mean, <laughs> but, especially getting called Angry Andes. But yeah, but 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 you got kids in the car. You're going to McDonald's because just by saying McDonald's, I know what they serve. I know how much it costs. I know how quick I can get in and out. I know there's a bathroom. There's probably a playland. I know all kinds of stuff because McDonald's has spent a fortune to make sure I know all of this about them. Yeah, and and that's exactly the idea behind. And, and I think when you get into one of the things I always think is interesting is it's trademark attorneys and marketing people. Marketing people are always very into talking about branding and what they're actually talking about is trademarking. Um, but they don't in many respects understand the law of trademarks and the law of trademarking. Um, but that's what they're doing. They're making it so that when you see a brand, it's a shorthand for what you expect it to be. So again, if you look at a, you know an iPhone, you have a shorthand for what that product is supposed to be. You know who made it, what features it has, stuff along those lines. If somebody came out with a different phone, called it that same thing, there would be confusion as to what it is. It isn't to say that's the product you want to purchase or that you give a good association with that mark. It's simply that you have an association with that mark. Mm -hmm. And that that association is essentially an accurate association for what it is. And people try to use trademarks commercially to to hint at what their goods and services are so they can convey information effectively. And the great example of that is if you ever go to a, a Walgreens, okay, you walk in and you want to get some Benadryl. Right next to Benadryl is Wall Drill. Yeah. Clearly a different trademark, but it's put right next to it. And the fact that it has D-R-Y-L at the end, it doesn't take a lot of mental gymnastics to figure out that it's a generic competing yeah. product to Benadryl. Well, particularly also having the wall in front of it, you also know it's Walgreens. You also know it's Walgreens, version. exactly. So you can use the drill part, which which you know ostensibly by itself is not enough to, to be confusing, and you can put the product side by side, and, and you can do that to convey information about yeah. what it is. But as I said, the, th- the thing about it is, is it only conveys what it is, but it also did actually tell you who the manufacturer is. It's presumably a generic of Walgreens, as opposed to a generic manufactured by a third party that would also potentially be sitting next to it. Now, we, we talked in our very first episode about what form of IP protects universes, and we talked about that in the context of the Rogue One trailer at the time. Yep. You know, so Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, uh, and and 
part of the problem with with I, uh, problem a limitation of IP law is that copyright is not a, the best tool for this because the whole point of copyright is that it covers expressions of ideas, yep. not ideas themselves. So if I wanted to, an example of what we're going to talk about is what stops me from making a, a movie or a game uh, set in the Middle Earth setting? And and so so we're going to make a board game and we're going to call it Minas Tirith, which is the, the capital human city in Lord of the Rings. Yep. Why can't I do that? Is there a copyright to the name Minas Tirith? Well, and again, it's, it, the, the argument here you bump into is the name Minas Tirith is probably too short to be copyrighted. Mm-hmm. You can't copyright short phrases, individual names, individual titles, sort of stuff like that. Copyright requires sort of what they call a modicum of creativity to sort of get beyond it. It's probably too short. Now, maybe you could because it's essentially a made-up word. Mm-hmm. But the the thing that I think you're going to bump into is that there's a good argument copyright doesn't apply. Certainly not patentable. Yeah, and to the extent that we even say Minas Tirith, you know, we can pick another alternative, which gets to a little more basic of a name, Osgiliath. but obviously, yeah, that, that commonly refers to something, yeah, Weathertop being a good example, that commonly refer, you know, that, that's closer to, to generic wording, yeah. so now we're really saying it's probably not copyrightable. Yeah, so so what interest could prevent you from doing this? It's got to be some sort of trademark interest, right? Because the the concern, or the, the legal concern, is the same as as in trademark. You know, we, we don't want just anybody to be able to make a game called Minas Tirith and, and sell it, and the the reason is because why is somebody going to go play this game? Is it yeah. because you have great game mechanics and a great game design, or because they're Lord of the Rings fans and it's called Minas Tirith? Yeah. And the idea is, you know, we, it just seems fundamentally unfair that you know uh, Tolkien's estate and the movie studios, it was a New Line, I think, does yeah. the Hobbit movie or the Sounds Lord right, of the yeah. Rings movies. They've put a lot of time and money into building up goodwill in these brands, and if you come along and sell a Minas Tirith board game and call it that, people are going to buy it based on their familiarity with the brand, regardless of the quality of the product. The interesting thing about it is, and I think this is the thing, we're talking about the brand. There is no Minas Tirith brand. That's the thing. What To, to get the trademark rights, what... What has they? What have they sold under the brand name Minas Tirith to establish trademark rights in, say, a board game? Yeah, and and the issue I think you particularly get into is let's go before movies. So let's actually jump before the the, the Lord of the Rings movies existed. They were just books. There were basically no products. Yes, yeah, Lord really. of the Rings. There were three books. You know, arguably a fourth. Um, <laughs> but the the thing that I think you get into is is you know we're looking at this and saying this seems like trademark law should apply here. This feels like it's trademark related. Like you're trading off goodwill of another. You clearly like are. You're causing consumer confusion. That sounds like what you're trying to do. But where's the underlying trademark? Where's the underlying Where the product right? whose stuff I'm co-opting? You can't have trademark infringement without owning a trademark. Yeah. So that's part of the problem. So then you get into these other theories like dilution and things like that maybe that that, that could apply. But it's not always a neat fit. And, and this is where you know people who are small-time actors can sometimes get away with this because they're not making very much. You know, People in Etsy stores and whatnot will, will make and sell branded things, sometimes using officially licensed materials. So yep. then they make a physical product like a pillow or a, or a stuffed uh, a plush toy or something. Um, but what happens, I think, more often, particularly for bigger companies, is they just they just recreate the same look and feel that they want in their own yeah. brand. And I think the best example of that that people will be familiar with is Warcraft. Yeah, I think you, when you start getting into this, you guys start with Warcraft and Starcraft. Let's be truthful too; yep. it's both halves of it. Um, you know the the thing that I think you you've really got to keep in mind. And again, what we're talking about with this is we're talking about an area of. What does it mean to be saying a word that arguably isn't a trademark but seems to have trademark-type connotations versus copying essentially wholesale the, the concept, the idea, getting rid of the words? 
Yeah, so so the background on Warcraft, for those of you who don't know, Warcraft started in like 94, I want to say, with the original Sounds Orcs right, vs. Humans yeah. game. I think of my, I was in college at the time. Warcraft 1, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it's since expanded, obviously, to the, the World of Warcraft, by far the most successful online RPG. Uh, what's, what's funny, though, is you know Blizzard, I believe, originally tried to license the Warhammer universe yep. to make games, but Warhammer at the time was sort of well known as a, as having very tight creative games control. And, yeah, and they weren't really making. I think they were making their own games in conjunction with some a few video games, like yeah, uh, the Epic games. Game was out and stuff yeah. like that. But, but I think they were they were a little unsure about this. Quite frankly, I think mean, this is me guessing, but I think they were a little unsure about this whole multiple. Player RPG. Well, Blizzard was a concept. new company, I think, at the time. Yeah. Um, had done, I think, they'd done some work with with Marvel, maybe, and on some comic uh, comic games. But Blizzard wanted more creative control over their property, and and them and a Games Workshop just couldn't work out a way to to do this and yeah. satisfy the needs of both parties. So they didn't. Uh, instead, uh, Blizzard developed the Warcraft universe, which, if if you know both properties. There's a lot of overlap in terms of themes and look and feel, uh, very similar, to the point that when Warhammer released its own... Uh, yeah, Warhammer RPG, Age of Reckoning or War. Yeah, which I played and that was very fun. I loved it. Um, you know, I remember getting on there and people being like, this is just a ripoff of Warcraft. I'm like, don't don't you say that to a Games Workshop <laughs> fan. You'll, get, you'll yeah, get punched. Because effectively Warcraft was a ripoff of Warhammer. Yeah. Except for the fact that Warhammer was arguably a ripoff of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, like these 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 myth- mythos all go back to the, the Tolkien uh, archetypes for, for yeah. elves and dwarves and all this stuff. And we've stuff. mentioned this previously in one of our, our very early episodes. You know, what you bump into is if you think about who came up with the concept of dwarves are short and use axes. The most, you know, implausible thing. Why don't you use a two-handed axe when you're short and have no leverage? <laughs> That's Tolkien. That's really where sort of that play started. The idea of elves being haughty and aloof started with Tolkien. And shooting bows. And- yeah, you have a lot of sort of what we consider to be just generic archetypes in the fantasy world in some sense stretch back to the Lord of the Rings. We have a situation where you know a company wanted to use a setting, couldn't come to business terms, and so they just made up a new setting of their own. And you can do that. Copyright, yeah. idea, expression. It's the same ideas expressed differently. That's fine. And we're even seeing this now with if you've seen uh, Seth MacFarlane, the Family Guy uh, creator. Uh-huh. He's got a show called The Orville, which I've I've seen part of one episode. It looks a lot like Star Trek The Next Generation. It looks like it. It feels like it, except it's got your typical Seth MacFarlane toilet humor thrown in here <laughs> and there. But, but it's, the same, it's the same basic idea. It's basically like a fan, a fan film that's being <laughs> produced by actual people. Um, but you, you can do that. So, so trademark interests are, are what's going to protect a universe. Copyright's not going to do it. Patent certainly is not. Uh, but, but like we said, there's a problem. Continuing with the Minas Tirith example, you get trademark rights at common law by offering the goods and services, and arguably they haven't. Yeah, where are the goods and services under this? And, and particularly you also get into, remember, it's the goods and services have to be somewhat similar as well, too. There's got to be some likelihood of confusion. One of the cases I remember looking into you know, early into this is the kryptonite bike locks. Kryptonite, obviously, oh, yeah. being you know Superman's an- antithesis and, and the the material that could bring him down. What did CC Comics trademark under the name Kryptonite? Or how about and, Carbonite, the Data Protection Service? Yep, you're getting into a lot of these now. Interesting in the, in the Kryptonite one, if you actually read through the Kryptonite case, they, they're, they're discussing trademark infringement, but they tend to be using. Uh, sorry, they're discussing copyright infringement, but they tend to use a lot of trademark principles in discussing mm-hmm. copyright infringement. And and what you're seeing when you're getting into some of these cases is that that recognition that you've got these trademark principles underlying where there may not really be a trademark, but maybe copyright can apply somehow. 
Well, in addition to, so turning back to the Nazi example, what exactly are the goods and services that were being sold under the brand name Nazi? It's yep. Nazi brand blank. What goes in the blank? It's not the game. It's an Indiana Jones, Jones game. game. Yeah, and that's so, unquestionably a trademark. Yeah, so so what what is the Nazi trademark applied to? It's not really clear. Yeah, it's applying, it seems to, to the name of this character. But that brings us to our next topic. The character is a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, and the character is not, and, and the thing about it, when you talk about like character copyrights and the idea behind sort of protection and characters, the character is a Nazi, which is about as generic as you can get. That's like saying it's a soldier. It's just so, giving an affiliation with a particular, you know, regime soldier. I mean, I could say they're a Roman legionnaire. It's exactly the same sort of statement. This gets us to a second issue that's crucial to understand trademarks called the spectrum of distinctiveness. And what this basically speaks to is that not every word is appropriate for use as a trademark for any particular good or service. Yep. Uh, under American law, at least, we generally divide trademarks up into four, sometimes five categories, ranging from generic to fanciful. Yep. Where generic trademarks are words that are the generic word for the thing that you're talking about. Yep. You can never have a trademark on a generic term. And the classic example is, I can't trademark the word Apple as applied to an apple. Yep. Because then nobody else can say what an apple is. Yeah, so I can't sell you know, Apple brand apples. It's just yep. not allowed. And, and by the, the converse flip side of that is what's called genericide, and that's where a trademark becomes a victim of its own success. The trademark becomes the generic word for the product yep. to the point where you lose the trademark rights. And the classic example is elevator. Yep. So elevator being one of them. Elevator used to be a trademark from the— uh, it was the Otis, wasn't it? Otis, Otis Elevator, elevator And it was yeah. the uh, moving, moving room. A vertical lift room, something like that. Yeah. I don't know what the generic term was for. Well, it. you ever wonder why sometimes words are different between the UK and here? I'm convinced that trademarks are part of it. You know, yep. Ele- Elevator was the brand name here, and so it's called an elevator. In the UK, they call them lifts. Yep. And that's people talk about us. Elevator being the common one. A few others, just so you know, guys know, Escalator is also another yep. one that's commonly known. And the one that's probably the most famous Kerosene. in trademark circles in conjunction with it is Aspirin. Aspirin, yeah. Barry used to own Aspirin. Um, and so, you know, those are words that suffer genericide. Those are, I mean, people nowadays, I, I give these presentations on these things, and I tell people these used to be trademarks. Styrofoam. I mean, they're, they're dumbfounded. Astroturf. I mean, there's a lot. Of, um, I mean, some of those might still be protected. Yeah. Thermos was a good one. Like, there's a lowercase t thermos and there's uppercase t thermos. Yep. Um, and so, so there's all sorts of sort of concerns where you know words that become so associated with particular goods and services can actually become generic names for them because we need a generic name for it. Unfortunately, a lot of times it also applies to products that are kind of revolutionary mm-hmm. because we don't have a generic name for it. Um, and that's the the things with it. And there are companies that have fought genericide. Oh yeah, for a long time we used to say Xerox that for me. Yep. Nobody does. We say copy it for me. And part of that, I don't remember, that probably people probably don't remember this, but actually, I, there used to be a series of ads that were great that Xerox put out, and I still use them as an example. And it's the it was like two guys talking with each other, and it's clearly like the young intern and the big boss, mm-hmm. and the big boss is yelling at the young intern, and the young intern's basically saying, "What's wrong? You did what you told me to do." And the end stage of what you hear is you hear the intern say, you told me to make to, to get 10 Xeroxes. And then the pan, camera pans back and he's surrounded by 10 Xerox photocopiers. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole argument of saying when you say Xerox, you mean the photocopier, not the photocopy. Mm-hmm. And you mean a particular brand of photocopier is what it is. And it is. I think the, I mean, I remember people commenting, referring to, you know, go Xerox this for me, you know, stuff like yep. that. Nobody says that anymore. They we refer have, to them as we photocopiers. We have Google. Go Google that. But what we mean when you say Google that, we don't mean go check Alta Vista. We yeah, mean we mean go, mean go, check, go check Google. <laughs> Yeah, so so genericide is a real thing. I mean, Rollerblade had this problem. Kleenex had this problem. Band-Aid. A lot of these companies fought back to... The bottom line is... If that's not the generic word, then what is? Okay, well, then facial tissue or inline skates. Ba- ba- yeah. Adhesive bandage. Adhesive bandage. So you get these kind of weird words to describe things. So there, there are ways to fight back against that. So generic can never be copy or trademarked. The next category is descriptive. 
These are words that are, like it suggests, descriptive of the characteristics of the product. So like sharp as applied to a knife. You probably can't get a trademark to sharp brand knives because then if somebody else wants to say we have the sharpest knives, you're going to say you're infringing my trademark. Yeah, and that's uh, the the thing with descriptive is a lot of times descriptive marks also tend to have some sort of geographical association, things like that. The one that I always pick on in conjunction with is banks Mm -hmm. because the vast majority of banks are city or number bank. And that First usually federal, northwestern. Yeah. yeah. You know, the idea of like first bank of Iowa, first bank of Missouri, probably is because they were the first bank in Iowa, they were the first bank in Missouri. You know, those are the kind of things that you, you sort of bump into. Those are descriptive marks. At the same time, if I say the first bank, everybody knows exactly what bank I'm referring to. So it's it's descriptive, but everybody knows, and it's become a trademark. The next category is suggestive. And, and, and to be clear, descriptive marks ordinarily cannot be used as a trademark. It is possible in some circumstances yep. to acquire distinctiveness over time through Correct. exclusive use. And you can probably think of some pretty, pretty— Yeah, again, know, I love to pick on first bank. I mean, yeah, because first banks bank basically probably use it because they were the first bank originally, but well, clearly about, everybody knows what bank I'm referring to. How about Microsoft to. Windows? It's yeah. a window-based operating system, but clearly trademarked. Yep. Okay, the next category is suggestive, and suggestive marks are, are the, f- the lowest level of mark as far as um, distinctiveness that is always trademarkable. Yep. And suggestive marks are, they hint maybe at characteristics of the product without flat out describing it. And this is often a fine line between yep. suggestive and descriptive. There's also a lot of differences between different levels of suggestive marks, yeah. too. It's so like sharp as applied to a TV, the sharpest picture, yeah. for example. My, my or favorite, Blu-ray, Blu-ray yeah. DVDs. It's a blue laser. Yeah, my favorite actually thing for suggestive marks is actually Savage Arm applies to guns, mm-hmm. which I think is an excellent example of a suggestive mark. I mean, you know what they're saying, you know, immediately yep. as to what it is and suggestive. At the same time, it, it has no association. Yeah. It's clearly not descriptive, you know, as to what it is. That, you know, the, you know, the, the end, you know, a knife or a gun is not in itself savage in any under definition of the, of the, mm-hmm. of the word, but, you know, it gives you a bunch of associations that are very, very interesting sort of in conjunction. And I, I like to use that one as a great example of a suggestive mark. So the next category is arbitrary, and that's for you're using a real world, a real real word, but it's being applied to a product that's got nothing to do with the word. Yep. And Apple computers is a classic example. Apples yeah, that, have nothing to do with computers. Yep, and that's the other thing. So it's, it's choosing a word which is generic in other contexts, but yep. is applied completely arbitrarily to what the goods and services are. And then the best category as far as legal protectability is fanciful, and that's just a completely manufactured word, which obviously has no meaning other than what you give it. As the trademark user, Xerox is the classic example. Yeah, Xerox is always used as the classic example. A lot of times these can be quite truthful. They're literally made up words. They're words yeah. that didn't exist before the person created it. Another great one is Google. Google, yeah. Well, that's a mathematical term, but yeah, it, but it has wrong. no association with a search engine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's the, true. Okay, so here's the problem with the Nazi trademark. In addition to not being clear what they're applying it to, they stuck it on a figurine of a Nazi. Kirk, isn't that just generic? Yeah, it would seem to be. Um, and again, what what is the generic word for somebody who was a soldier fighting for the you know for the, the National Socialist the National Party? Socialist Party? They were Nazi. <laughs> it was the Nazi Party. You know, sort of things. That's you bump into. This seems to be generic. So why did they even put this TM on it? Isn't this exactly what you're not supposed to get a trademark on? Yeah, and so I, I think our conclusion after looking at this is that setting aside that it appears to have been a clerical error at TSR in the first place. It's legally meaningless. Um, the, there's no clear goods or services identified, and to the extent that there are, it's just a generic picture of a generic uh, yep. you know, Third Reich soldier. And so to the extent that it's even interpreted as a claim of, cop, of, a, of a trademark to that, it's, it's legally ineffectual yep. because it's It's sort of like me saying, you know, this is a Roman legionnaire. TM. You know, this, yeah, TM. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, Spartan an, an, Amer- an, American, TM. Yeah, an American GI, you know, TM. Yep. 
um, sort of things. I think you you get into the ideas that you know these these seem to be the generic descriptions. Now again, could you move beyond it? Could you actually do something with it? GI Joe. Yeah, GI Joe. Yeah. You know, definitely a possibility. I think GI Joe is a well established trademark at this point in time. Actually, along those lines, Transformers, descriptive yep. or suggestive? Yeah, and that's I think <laughs> the, you, there's a lot of sort of fun words. Like that. The other one, just to sort of get into it, is recognizing that Nazi could be considered to be an arbitrary trademark. If you said it was Nazi paper, it was printed yeah. on paper. At the same time, that's clearly not what they meant. Yeah. And at the same time, why would you actually ever use <laughs> yeah. that as a trademark? Your, your demographic for Nazi brand paper is probably, <laughs> probably limited. Very limited. Yes. Wouldn't it be burning the paper in that situation? <laughs> yeah, to wonder. All right. Uh, we have no mail today. We went through most of our mail last time. Although uh, I did hear from somebody uh, anecdotally at uh, at our firm said that they were in a deposition and a videographer had mentioned that he listens to the podcast and loves the show. So mystery videographer, if you're out there uh, and listening to this, hi and uh, reach out sometime and, and say hello. Send us questions. Yep. All right, well, there's the music. It is time to go. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, whether it's about Nazi trademarks or anything else, uh, send us your thoughts on Twitter at LGGPod, email us at LGGPodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on our Facebook page, Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. If you like what you hear, give us a review. We appreciate those reviews. It helps us spread the word and helps other people find us. And you can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. Uh, next episode, Kirk, special guest, I believe. We're hoping. Yeah, We're I mean, hoping. that's definitely the thing. With it. So the problem with the special guest is, you know, we get to control our time. We can't necessarily yeah, make she sure doesn't. that she can. So uh, our, our special guest, uh, we're, we're going to not name names yet just in case this falls through. But if it's, if it's who we're hoping for, we have a brilliant and talented colleague who practices an IP advertising sweepstakes law, and she's a huge nerd to boot. So we thought we'd bring her on and talk about uh, the RN, the law of RNG, basically, yep. and and, uh, and and how you draw lines between... And especially uh, in today's day and age, the, the random number generator has become something incredibly important. <laughs> in, in a, a large number of games and a large number of geeky type properties as to whatever it is. And it's more important legally than you'd think. Yeah. We're also looking at uh, trying to bring in a Second Amendment specialist at some point to talk about the implications of phasers, energy weapons, and how that might apply in a Second Amendment context. Yep. Also, Kirk and I were talking a week or two ago. We are almost to the point where we're ready for the episode everybody wants, which is uh, fan fiction and character copyrights. We know you all want it. You everybody keep keeps asking about for it. it. Say yes to what it is. The- so I think we'll probably do... Um, Fan? Oh, character copyrights probably need to come first. Yeah, we'll probably do character copyright. And we, t- we obviously hinted about character copyright already in yeah. conjunction with these episodes. That'll we'll get into the Mickey Mouse stuff, which is also going to be coming up in a couple of years with the, with the trademark exp- or the yeah. copyright expiring on that. But I think the, the key thing about it is, and it, the, as we've said in conjunction with it, this is a big topic. It's probably going to be a multi-episode topic for us yeah. to really cover it in any kind of depth. Um, but, you know, we're we're basically there. We're thinking yeah. of, you know, we've what's taken this long because we had to lay enough legal groundwork to be able to understand uh, all the concepts that are involved. So, anyway, so that's coming up. And on the Second Amendment, if you are or know a person who would like to be on the show and talk about that, let us know because uh, these people are harder to find than you might think. Yeah, they're a little harder to find than you think. All right, that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 